Welcome to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast, where Pastor Jeff Cranston, along with our host, Jen Denton, will discuss biblical theology in an understandable way. You'll discover how to apply biblical truth to your life. Thanks for joining us at the table. Let's get started. Well, hello again, y'all, and welcome back to Kitchen Table Theology. I'm your host, Jen Denton, and along with Pastor Jeff Cranston, we believe what Dr. Al Mohler recently said, every worldview is theological in some sense. It might be more consistently or less consistently theological, or rightfully and truthfully theological, or less rightfully and truthful theology. But there's not a non-theological square inch in the entire cosmos. And here at Kitchen Table Theology, we believe and desire to help you understand right and true theology as found in Scripture. We're currently looking at a number of things that instantaneously occur in the life of the believer at the moment of salvation. Pastor Jeff, what are we looking into today? Well, hello, Jen, and hello again, Kitchen Table Theologian. Today, we're going to look at the concept of being a child of God, and I'm excited about this concept. And along with these other ones that we have been studying. It's one of the riches of divine grace that God sends our way, as you said, instantaneously at the moment of salvation. That's right. And I feel like this is one of the concepts we hear a lot about, or most of us, I'm guessing, would feel that we have a pretty good understanding of. But knowing what I know after now doing 109 or so episodes of Kitchen Table Theology, I'm guessing that that might not be exactly right. So let's jump in. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. I I think most Christians have a sense of uh, knowing and understanding that at the moment of salvation, they become a child of God. But we also live in a world where we hear all the time that everyone is a child of God. And to go back to Dr. Moeller's quote you just shared a moment ago, that concept would fall under uh, the scope of less consistent, less right, less true theology. The idea of everybody being a child of God is certainly not biblical. It is true that every human being is created in God's image, but that does not make every person a child of God. Only those who have come to God the Father in repentance and thrown themselves upon the mercy of Christ through the cross, His shed blood, His resurrection, through their own repentance of sin, those are the people who have the right to be called children of God. So we're talking repentance, mercy, shed blood, resurrection. We kind of went from zero to 100 there, didn't we? Right there. There it was, yeah. (laughs) Well, then let's break this down and see what the Bible teaches about being a child of God. And Kitchen Table Theologian, just a quick reminder, we are looking at the things that happen in the life of a believer instantaneously at the moment of salvation. And we're drawing from Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer in Volume 3 of his Systematic Theology. Pastor Jeff, go ahead and get us started. Well, after that, with Dr. Schaefer and Volume 3 and Systematic... Are you still listening? It's fancy pants. <laughs> well, yeah, let's, let's jump in. When a person is born anew or born again by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit into a relationship with God the Father, that person who is saved is instantaneously declared a legitimate child of God. Now, we, I think we only apprehend this mutedly. I'm not sure that we understand the full scope of this. It's not completely clear to us. Mm-hmm. So for everyone who believes in Christ as their Savior, this heavenly reality also becomes an earthly one. This is, you know, when you're saved, you are born from above. That's, that's what it means in John, John 3. Mm-hmm. 
And it kicks off, your salvation kicks off an incredible transformation in the life of the believers. So what happens is both eternal, but also has a lot of ramifications for the here and now. And it gives us that sense, then, that truth that we as Christians are born into, arguably, the greatest family we could ever ask for, think of. Uh, not even arguably. It is the greatest <laughs> Definitive <family. Yeah>. truth. <laughs> yeah. Or imagine. So uh, we look around and perhaps know someone who was born into a family that stands head and shoulders above most others. They have like glitter sparkles that follow them everywhere, right? Like, so let's say it's a wealthy it's family true, or yeah. a successful family or an Instagram perfect family. And you're like, a family, how did they get in that family? <laughs> a family of outstanding character. And we sometimes look at those people and think, pretty lucky to be born into yeah. that family. <laughs> I, yeah, I never do that. Of course you don't. No, no. Do you do that? <laughs> I mean, everybody's human. I mean, like to live a day in, in that house or drive that car for a day. or. <laughs> but it's a good point because yeah. it's, it's like those who are born into royalty and, and wealth. As Jen and I are recording this, the celebration of the Queen's coronation 75 years ago, the Jubilee. That just ended. And, you know, you look at all the royalty. They're only in the positions of power and prestige because they happen to be born into that family. But the, you know what I love? They still have bratty little kids and are making faces yes, at them. Yes, they em. do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And mama has to go have the, the come to Jesus yeah, moment that, with them. <laughs> that one little boy was, was acting out. Brings things back to earth, at least. Yeah, <laughs> it does. But, you know, when, you, when you're talking about royalty and, and things like that. The the day of their birth, they receive not only a name, but they receive a title reflecting their position in that family. And the same thing happens for the believer. So to be, to be born of God comes with every right and title belonging to our position. And we've talked about many of those things over the last couple of years here on Kitchen Table Theology. And just a couple, you're an heir of God. You're a joint heir with Christ. And just those two alone, and those are two of many things that we in inherit the moment of our salvation. All of that passes the range, I think, of our human understanding, doesn't mm, it? Mm -hmm. it? It does, and I think maybe that's why the Bible might give us a few different ways to look at it, to understand it all. You know, we've got this term, born again, and it's one that we're probably the most familiar with. Jesus mm -hmm. used that term with Nicodemus. <laughs> and I've always found it interesting that Jesus selected good old Nick, one of the most religious and ideal men of his day there in, in Judaism, to declare how necessary it is for one to be born from above. First Irishman in the Bible. First Irishman. Nick Odemus. <laughs> All right, dad, there's the dad joke but, um, for this episode. <laughs> Yeah, so he he was Jesus was showing him you can do all of this stuff, but it 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 doesn't get you in the right relationship with the Father. And he Jesus uses the term born again, but that's not the only term or the the only place that that's really used in its in its concept. But various terms are used throughout the New Testament, which all are used to identify new birth. Born again happens to be one of them. Regenerated is one of them. Quickened is one. Sons of God, that's one. New creation. And those terms are all used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, talking about the moment or, or what, what occurs and, and the way God views us when we, are, uh, when we come to Christ. So that's a good plan for our time together today. Why don't we spend a minute or two on each of those and 
go a little bit deeper into understanding those concepts of new birth. Yeah, sure. So let's deal with born again. You said that's probably the one we we all hear the most, we're most familiar with. So how about reading? Uh, we find that in John 3, 1 through 3. So how about reading that for us, please? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. And the word again can also be rendered anew. And its implication is that it is not only an actual birth, but it is new in the sense that it is not part of that first birth, which the Bible says is after the flesh. So this has nothing to do with physical birth. So Jesus is making sure this is quite separate, completely different from the way you and I come into this world. So there's no reordering, there's no revising of the birth by flesh. It's new in the sense that it is complete in itself, and it has it's no product of the flesh. This is completely new. And really, that whole born again, born anew, this is emphasized heavily in the original language. So if you're reading this, John one through John 3, 1 through 3 in the Greek, very heavily emphasized that this has nothing to do with our natural birth. And, and a few verses later, in fact, in verse 6, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is of the Spirit. So you see, Jesus, it was even in his mind, this has nothing to do with the flesh. He says that in those first three verses, but he, it doesn't come through in our language necessarily. But then in verse 6, oh, there he goes, and he addresses it, and it does come out in our language, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So there is this sense that the new birth is completely of the Spirit of God. It has nothing to do with our flesh, and it brings us into God's family as a child. Mm. I think this is one of those concepts that's kind of weird for people that don't understand the Bible, they don't understand theology, they weren't raised in the church. When they hear things about radicalism, they they think, oh, are you one of those born again? Because yeah. being born again one sounds born so agains. bizarre yeah. to them. Well, the next word you mentioned was regenerated. Titus 3.5 conveys the new birth idea when we read about the washing of regeneration. How does that tie in with Christians becoming children of God at salvation? So yeah, that's Titus 3.5. So if why not read that whole verse for us, please? So we we see that washing of regeneration term in its context. Sure. So he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So verse five in Titus three is part of a poetic stanza covering verses four through seven. The phrase, he saved us, that begins that verse 5, specifically implies that God is the source of salvation, and that's a theme common throughout Scripture. This verse also emphasizes how God saves. Being saved is not something we accomplish through our good deeds, but through the mercy of God. Salvation comes only from God and only through his mercy. So, to your point, salvation includes the washing of regeneration. So what that refers to is the spiritual cleansing which takes place when a person accepts Christ in salvation. At that moment, a person's life is regenerated. So again, instantaneously, your life is regenerated or made new. So there we have the whole new concept again. 
The word regeneration means a spiritual renovation. Specifically, as Titus writes it, it's a change by grace from a carnal nature to a Christian life. So the Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit renews our lives when we come to faith in Christ. We're, we're cleansed by God and His grace at salvation and, and brought into His family as one of His children. So when we're born again, we're regenerated, and so we're brand new, and that's all part and parcel of becoming one of His children. Okay, so we've seen born again and now regeneration. Next, you said the New Testament uses the word quickened. Now, my daddy would go back to the old westerns we used to watch together. Is it um, Clint Eastwood, The Quick and the Dead? Well, yeah, I'm I'm familiar with that in a western. <laughs> I don't know who was in the movie. Yeah, or is that a, that's a term though too, yeah, the quick, right? You're, the you're, Quick you're, and the Dead. You're either, you're either quick, <laughs> like if you're if you're going to draw, you're going to draw sidearm, yeah. as they say. Yeah, you're either quick or you're dead. Yeah. So what is what does quickened have to do with all of this? Hopefully nothing. <laughs> well, hopefully not quick in the dead. We'll see. <laughs> but it, 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 it really does have a little bit to do with it. Quickened is a great word. It's used in the King James Bible. And it was then retranslated pretty much in subsequent Bible translations in other ways. But for example, in, in Psalm 2511, in the King James Version, quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. In the NIV, the New International Version, the verse reads this way, For your namesake, Lord, preserve my life. So they use the word preserve for quicken. In the New American Standard Bible, the same verse says, For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. So now we've got quicken, preserve, revive. So in this context, quickening involves revival and a preservation of life. And God gets the glory for it. But in salvation terms, quicken expresses the thought that an object is made alive that did not previously possess life. So that's that's pretty major when you think about our salvation. So let me just say it again. Quicken expresses the thought that an object is made alive that did not previously possess life. So let's stay with the King James Version for a moment. Now, I never... I was going to say, this is this a first I, in 109 episodes? I grew up on the King James. Mm-hmm. I pull, I have my children's Bible still mm-hmm. that I that I got in a Sunday school promotion probably when I was five. <laughs> Does it still have the writing from oh, yeah. Miss Betty or whoever yeah, yeah, yeah. it was in there? <laughs> Sunday school, 1970, Long yeah. Green Baptist Church, Long Green, Maryland. Yep. And it's King James. Mm-hmm. And I look at that. I'm like, they give this, they gave it to a kid. <laughs> I mean, you know, so... I have a deep appreciation for the King James. Sure. But 1611, you know, we don't talk like that anymore. But there's so many good things to it. And actually, my one of my very favorite translations to read out of is the New King James. But we digress. Or rather, I digress. <laughs> I'm not going to put you... So let's stay with King James for a moment. Jen, would, would you read two verses for us? They, they each use the word quicken in the context of salvation... And, and it reminds us that believers in Christ are spiritually quickened by God at the moment of salvation. And maybe re- read those and tell us where those verses are found. Sure. And you hath he quickened who were dead in tran- trespasses and sins. You want to try that again? Yes. See, it's hard See to read. It's, he we set me up, listeners. We, we are talk, you hearing this? We just don't talk like this anymore. <laughs> and you hath he quickened there you go. who were dead in trespasses and sins. And that comes from Ephesians 2, 1. So you have quickened over against dead. Mm-hmm. So there's the there's the where the concept is yeah. of 
making an object alive that did not previous possess life. So how about the next one? If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. And that's from Romans eight eleven. Okay, so that Romans verse right there tells us that believers should look forward to being physically quickened after death at the resurrection. So made alive again, as it were. And by the way, King, King James English is often difficult to understand, and we've already proven it's sometimes a little difficult to even pronounce. But since many terms such as quicken, well, we, there's terms, there's words like quicken, they're really good, and they were well known in 1611 and in the you know 17th and 18th centuries, but they have become more obscure to us sure. over the centuries. So it's, it's always helpful to read an unclear verse in several different translations, I find. Each translation will explain or use a different word in that verse or the passage a little differently sometimes, and we, we I tried to show that earlier with the NIV and NASB and KJV. And, and so you get some different ways of understanding the word. Now, not all the time does it do that, but many times it will. And when you compare it all side by side, you can gain a greater understanding. So quicken or quickened or quickening, that's a word the Bible uses for us at salvation, making us a child of God. Okay, so we've covered born again, regeneration, quicken or quickening, and you mentioned the term sons of God. What's that? So sons of God is a title, and that's used often in the New Testament. It's just a descriptive phrase highlighting the true relationship between God, between God and those who are saved by Christ. We are sons of God, not by a mere title or just some pretense of some sort, but by actual regeneration, regeneration, we're the offspring, so to speak, of God. So sons of God, that's easy to tie into being a, a child of God. Well, I'm glad you said offspring, because I am not a son. I am a lady, a woman, a gal. <laughs> I am a daughter. <laughs> and you're feeling a need to prove all well, this Well, we live in a sensitive... Is that is that even the word to call what we live in right now? Uh, I don't know. We live in a sensitive do you, do you gender mean, language culture. Cr- do you mean crazy? <laughs> I would say that. No, know, but you're right. We do. It's you got to be careful. We do. Yeah, that's a that's a whole other topic that's for a, another time. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be helpful to look at that word sons because I'm guessing that that's not just something that's limited to males. You don't think? I would hope not. <laughs> I want to be one of those. Well, it's a very it's a great question. A good point. So, yeah, so d- does sons of God refer only to males? That's what you're asking. Sure. Sh- sure? Sure. Yes, okay. Yeah, let's go with that. Second <laughs> <laughs> Corinthians 6.18 mentions God saying this, You shall be sons and daughters to me. So there you go. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Sons and daughters. He doesn't just say sons that time. That's my point. Yes. Galatians 3.26, <laughs> For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ and Jesus Christ. So... But now it just says sons of God again. So is is it limited to boys and men? Well, let, let's be good Bible students who rightly divide the word here. One of the benefits of living under grace is believers become, quote-unquote, sons of God. So let's take a look at that, Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the word sons there in Galatians 3 means full-grown sons, full-grown. It's a much stronger term than children of God. In Roman times, when Paul was writing those words, and he's writing to Roman Christians, when a child reached the age of adulthood, his father would give him a toga virilis, it was called, a coat of manhood. 
now once he had the toga virilis, now his I can't believe we got through that without a Animal House reference from you. <laughs> <laughs> but now once the son had the toga virilis, the son could operate with all the privileges of adulthood as a child of God, as a child of his father. So it sounds still pretty man-centric, doesn't sure. it? But let's look at the verse again. For you are all, that word all is really key, sons of God through faith in Jesus. So note the word all. This means every person who becomes a child of God becomes a full-grown, quote-unquote, son, as it were. All the rights, privileges, and titles, just like a firstborn son would receive in Middle Eastern and some European cultures. So it's not just for males. Christ died for all. And therefore, every believer, male or female, receives all from God now that we are his children through his grace. Does that help? Yeah. There was, there was no, there was going to be no controversy on that, obviously, but it's good to know because I looked at that verse in a couple of different translations, even the more modern English, and I figured that they would soften the sons and make it offspring or make it children. And they don't because in the original language, it's referring to sons, but Paul's not referring to males. I think what he's referring to is all of the rights and privileges that a firstborn son would get in a family over the second or third or fourthborn son, over the daughters. But he's saying, no, no, you get all the rights and privileges that come from God when you become his child. So that's a great example of somebody reading something in the Bible and taking it at first glance and just saying, oh, well, I don't right. like that. Right. <laughs> Without yeah. digging a little bit yeah. deeper. You see, it's all man-centric. <clears throat> it's all ge- geared to males. Mm-hmm. And But if you take a little bit, you don't even have to take a deep dive. Mm-hmm. If you just study the language. The origin. The or- yeah, mm-hmm. and what it, it actually means, it becomes pretty clear fairly quickly. Well, there's one more. You mentioned the term new creation. I did. So that's 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So a new creature literally there means a species of being which has never before existed. This ties into the previous words and phrases we've looked at today, doesn't it? We, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and we are new. This is not only by the direct work of God in us himself, but it all stems back to the vital relationship in Jesus and and all that he's done for us. So there's a lot in in this. So a child of God, you were something that was dead, now made alive, something that never existed before, now has come to life, born again, all of that. All of that happens when we become saved instantaneously at the moment of salvation. All of that we've been talking about today rather in rather a great deal of length. I feel like we've gone over our normal time today. But uh, all that comes under the umbrella of uh, being a child of God. And it's a good thing it does. Yeah, and it's a good place to stop. (laughs) It is a good place to stop. Well, hey, thanks as always, everyone, for listening to Kitchen Table Theology. If you haven't yet done so, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening from if you like the show. And kindly leave us a rating or a review. And don't forget to check out today's episode show notes as well. Also, head on over to jeffcranston.com for more information about Dr. Cranston, his books, sermons, leadership notes, and blog posts. And Lord willing, next week, we'll be back with another great episode. So there you go. See you then. (laughs) See you next week. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast with Jen Denton and Pastor Jeff Cranston. Join us next time for more insights into biblical truth. 
If you'd like to know more on today's topic, you can check out the show notes at jeffcranston.com. You can also email us at pastorjeff at lowcountrycc.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes? We deeply appreciate your help in getting the word out. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or in your favorite podcasting app to continue this journey with us as we learn about and apply God's Word to our lives. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time here at Kitchen Table Theology.